You're listening to the Good Samaritan Anglican Church Podcast. The following sermon was recorded on November 11th, 2018. A reading from the book of Hebrews. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own, For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. In 1803, the Louisiana Purchase doubled the size of the United States for a price of about $15 million, or roughly three cents per acre. That's a deal. That's a really good deal. Even today, when you translate those 15 million to however many billions of dollars it would have been, that's a really good deal for that much land. Twice the size of the United States. When they purchased it, though, uh, Thomas Jefferson was really negotiating primarily for New Orleans. Just that one little city on the coast, recognizing its importance as a port city that had access to the, the mainland of the United States. And lo and behold, Napoleon offered him not just New Orleans, but for a slightly higher price, all of the Louisiana Territory. It was a massive, massive purchase. But if you think about it, like that that show where people buy those storage units, and they don't know what's inside the storage unit until they've already put a price on it and, and purchased it at auction, That's kind of what the Louisiana Purchase was for the United States of America. We had no idea what was in that territory. It was almost entirely unexplored by Western people. The Native Americans, of course, knew all about it. But the Western people knew nothing about it. And so, a year later, Lewis and Clark set off to discover what exactly we had just purchased and how we could make use of it and most importantly, to find a water route by which commerce could happen. Because in those days, of course, we didn't have trucks or, or things that could do long hauls across the United States. All we had was boats. And if you wanted to get something from one place to another, all the major cities were on the rivers. And so you would navigate the rivers and get the commerce from one place to the next. So Lewis and Clark set out with their team in canoes. And they find one waterway to the next waterway. They, do, they you know, pick up their canoes and carry them to the next river and put them back in the river. This is going pretty well. They're finding the things they need to find. They're discovering. They're making maps. They're using their compasses. 
and then they get to the Rocky Mountains. How do you navigate the Rocky Mountains in a canoe? It's not going to happen. And so they had to radically change their strategies and how they were going to go about the rest of what they were doing so that they could figure out what the rest of this territory looked like and how they could get to the Pacific Ocean. And eventually they did make it to the Pacific Ocean, but not without some struggle. How do you canoe your way through the mountains? Well, this is in fact the title of a book Bishop Neal has been recommending to us for a number of years now. Um, But it was also a major theme at the Diocesan Synod, which I just came home from last evening. And this book written by Todd Bolsinger uses this image of canoeing the mountains as a way to talk about the place that we're at as a church right now. Because if you haven't noticed, and it would be hard not to notice, the culture has shifted significantly around us. We're not in the same place that we were 10 or 20 or certainly 50 years ago. And the culture that you grew up in is not the culture that you live in today. So the question of this book and the question that needs to be on all of our minds is that because much of the skill, knowledge, and wisdom passed down to us over hundreds of years regarding how to do church and how to reach non-Christians, because these things are being taxed and challenged today in a rapidly changing culture, what are we going to do? Our situation is not unlike Lewis and Clark as they went from their canoes into those mountains and said, oh, this isn't going to work anymore. What are some of these shifts? Well, first of all, and primarily, we have moved from something called Christendom to a secular society. Now, Christendom, for those of you who are history nuts, goes all the way back to the Emperor Constantine in the 300s. The Emperor Constantine was the first of the emperors to declare Christianity as the state or national religion. And so from that point forward, Christianity went from being an underground sect to being the de facto standard religion. It it bumped out paganism, which had been the de facto standard religion up to that time. And so from the 300s until right now, we have been living in this era of Christendom. Of course, the kings have changed, the names of the countries have changed, empires have risen and fallen, but on the whole, in the Western world, Christianity has been the de facto standard religion for everybody. And so when you say to someone on the street, what religion are you? The answer has always been, unless by some circumstance they were something else, well, I'm a Christian. They might not be able to tell you too much about what that actually means or how that impacts and changes their life, but they would acknowledge that their basic default would be, I'm a Christian. And so that means that they they go to church on Christmas and Easter, um, at least in the last 30 years. 50 years ago, it meant they went to church every Sunday because 50 years ago, it would be hard to get a job, to run for political office, to really just exist in society if you didn't have a church membership. It was a major social pressure to attend a church. Today, there's no social pressure to to attend a church. And so if you're here, and I'm glad you're all here, welcome, it's because you want to be here. 
because you feel compelled by the Lord to be here, not because of some social pressure that's driven you here. That's a major shift. It's very different from where we were 50 years ago. There's another shift similar and related to it, and that's that previously people, when we tried to reach out with the gospel, the people we were reaching out to had a basic understanding of the faith. They knew the major stories of the Bible. They knew what sin was. They could tell you what the Bible said about sin and what was sin and what was not sin. And they all had a basic understanding of who Jesus was and what he came to do and what his crucifixion meant. They might not have taken it to heart, but everybody had heard that basic story. They, they understood that. That was the meta narrative that governed their world, the big story that encompasses all of our stories. But today, people might still know the name of Jesus. They might wear a, a blingy cross around their neck with lots of diamonds and gold and things. But that's about the extent of what they know about Christianity. They don't know the basic content of the scriptures, and they don't know what Jesus came to do. They might not even know that Jesus died on that cross that they wear around their neck. That, too, is a major cultural shift. And so where formerly all we had to do was convince people that they weren't living up to the standard that they knew they weren't living up to and that they needed to bow their knee to Jesus, now that story doesn't even factor in their worlds at all. And so the very thing that we need to accomplish as missionaries in our, computer, in our communities has radically changed. So how will we as Christians navigate through this uncharted territory? How will we go from the canoes that we've always used and loved into the mountains? What equipment will we need for the mountains? What training will we need for the mountains? How are we going to navigate the mountains? We need to be asking those questions. Now here's the thing. Lewis and Clark didn't have a map to follow. They were creating the map. That was one of their jobs, was to, to figure out what was there and put it on a map so that other people could find it too. But they did have some navigational tools to help them know that they were going in the right direction. The same kinds of tools that you might use uh, for sailors who were sailing the seas and trying to, to navigate the waterways. They had a compass. They had uh, whatever that, that funny thing is that you look at the stars and measure angles. What's that called? Sextant. A sextant, thank you. When was the last time you used a sextant? I usually put it in my phone, Google Maps, and it, it has a GPS and it takes me where I want to go. But they used a compass and a sextant to find out where they were in relation to everything else and then plot that on a map. So they had some basic tools to keep them going in the right direction. They knew where they were supposed to go, and they used those tools to keep moving. They didn't know where they were going exactly, but keep moving in the direction that they were supposed to go. So what are those tools for us? What are those navigational guides that help keep us on course? Well, first and foremost, of course, is the gospel. What did we read in Hebrews today? But as it is, he, being Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it, appointed for men to, as, just as it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes judgment, 
so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That's the gospel. That Jesus took on human flesh in the darkest moment of world history. And he knew that the only way to win the world back to himself was to die on a cross so that the world could be reconciled to him. Does that change? No. It hasn't changed in 2,000 years, and it's not going to change until Jesus comes again, as the scriptures tell us. That is a bedrock. That's a foundation. That's a fixed point that we can rely on and trust. And the the truth of that gospel is just as true today as it was 2,000 years ago. That hasn't changed. The nature of, of humans hasn't changed. The fallen nature, the fact that we're all sinners in need of a Savior, that hasn't changed. Some of the sins change from time to time, but even those, when it comes down to it, don't really change too much. So the gospel, our need for Jesus and his action to save us, and that last day that we're looking forward to, those are all fixed points in our world. We can use those like a compass and sextant to guide us into this uncharted territory because we know that those are immovable, that there's nothing that's going to change about that. And by extension, the whole of this book, the whole of the Bible, is a fixed point. When we read this, this serves as a guide to help us along the way. Beyond that, there are a few tools that we're working on as a vestry and as a congregation that are going to help us navigate this territory as well. And the first of them is our values, which we've been working to identify, and uh, both a, a committee from the church as well as the vestry have been uh, thinking and praying through a set of about eight values that we know to be the things that, that are important to this church, a part of the culture of this church. And we'll be sharing those with you very soon. Uh, there's no secret about it, I just didn't write them down, so I can't list them off for you right now. But they're things like prayer and the scriptures, discipleship, family, community, our Anglican tradition, and there's two more. And I'll share them with you when I think of them. So our values, our values, as we solidify our values, they too become a guide for us because they help us to navigate between good and good or good and bad. Have you ever been presented with two good options? It's a lot harder than being presented with a good option and a bad option. We were at a restaurant last night on our way home from, um, from Synod, and you open up the menu, and there's a lot of good food to choose from. How are you going to make your decision in the three minutes you have to make your decision because the, the server needs to change out your table? How are you going to make that decision? How do you choose between good and good? Well, as a parish, we choose between good and good by our values and by one other thing, which is our mission. How many of you, without looking at the cover of your bulletin, can tell me what our vision statement is as a church right now?
I can't either. I, I'd have to look at our bulletin. And so part of what we need to do is figure out what it is that God has called us to do as a parish. Go ahead and look at your front of your bulletin. What does it say? Read it together. We are committed to be a loving community, reaching people and leading them to become followers of Christ by loving God, loving others, and serving the world. Now, as we pray about this as a congregation, it might be this that continues to be our vision statement. It might be something different. But regardless of what it is, you can bet and be sure that it's going to be connected to what Jesus himself gave as the primary mission for the whole church for 2,000 years. And that is go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and, making, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. That is what the church has always been called to, and that's what we're called to, to make disciples, to take people from the world who don't know God and reconcile them to God in the power of the Holy Spirit, that they might become heirs with us of this kingdom, that they might have their sins forgiven, that they might be reconciled to God. That is what we're called to do. And that, too, is not going to change. So guided by God's word and the gospel, guided by our values, guided by our mission, we'll be able to chart these uncharted territories. We'll be able to make the map of Clay County and how God wants us to reach out to the people around us. And just like Lewis and Clark were guided by their mission to discover waterways and to make their way all the way to the Pacific Ocean, we're going to be guided by our mission to make disciples of all nations, but particularly of Middleburg and Clay County. And that will help us to have the focus we need to choose between good and good, or good and bad. But there's one other thing. Lewis and Clark weren't entirely without guidance. They had the waterways to guide them. A river really only goes one direction. Well, two if you go upstream. Just like a highway only goes two directions. You can go that way or you can go that way. And he was also, they were also, their company was guided by Native American guides that they hired along the way. People who had been there before, who had seen the territory and knew what was going on. So what will it be that guides us? It will be the same thing that's always guided us, the Holy Spirit. When we read in the Psalms today, we read these verses. Beginning in verse 3. Put not your trust in princes, nor in any child of man, for there is no help in them. For when one breathes his last, he shall return again to the earth, and in that day all his thoughts perish. And then it says in verse 5, Blessed is the one who has the God of Jacob for his help, and whose hope is in the Lord his God. So what does that say? It says we can't put our trust in the things of man. We can't put our trust in our brilliance or the brilliance of others. We can't put our trust 
and the experts who have come up with the plan for how to run the church for the last 30 or 40 or 500 years, we have to be guided by the Holy Spirit and the direction of God because it's God who will guide us. And nothing that we're dealing with is a surprise to God. You can bet that God is not standing up in heaven right now going, oh, me, I did not anticipate postmodernism. I did not anticipate millennials. I just don't know where these people came from. God knows about all of it. And God will guide us into the way he wants us to go if we listen to him. And so we can look back and take comfort in the people who have gone before us and the ways that they've been guided by the Holy Spirit. Not that we can just copycat what they've done, because what worked for them, even today, won't necessarily work for us in our context, but we can look at their example of being guided by the Holy Spirit. We can look at the example of some ways that they've responded to similar situations in the past, and we can use those things, too, to help guide us, and the Holy Spirit will be in all of it, showing us the way to go. When we look at the book of Acts, in particular, we see story after the story of the Holy Spirit leading the apostles to the places that they never considered going and using methods of mission which they had never considered using. Think about Peter and the vision that he had. We read about this in the, in the, the uh, daily reading guide if you've been following along in your bulletins each week. In the book of Acts, God gives Peter this vision of a sheet full of unclean animals, things that Jews are never supposed to eat. And he hears a voice saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, No, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. And God's point was, you are to go and baptize Cornelius, who's a Gentile. And not just Cornelius, but this is a sign that all Gentiles, all non-Jews, are welcome into God's kingdom if they submit themselves to Jesus Christ and accept the forgiveness that he offers them. That was a new thing. Peter didn't see that coming. Even Paul didn't see that coming. But God saw that coming. And it was the Holy Spirit that guided Peter. It was the Holy Spirit that guided Paul. It was the Holy Spirit that has guided the church for 2,000 years. And even back into the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was guiding the prophets and the kings. And the Holy Spirit still guides us today. And so we need not fear either. Change may happen. In fact, change is a given. Change is always going to happen. And we experience change all the time. But we know that whatever change happens, we will be guided by the Holy Spirit and he will carry us along. He will keep us on track. He will keep us faithful to the scriptures and to the gospel. He will keep us faithful to the mission that he's called us to. As we live in an area where Christianity has been dominant and participation in the church has been the norm, it could be easy to get discouraged and even depressed looking at these circumstances. There are challenges ahead of us. There will be mountains to climb. But as we look in the rearview mirror of Christian history, we can see that some of the most fruitful and exciting years in church history have been during times when Christianity was in the minority or even persecuted. God is calling us out of maintenance into mission. And it's going to be an incredible adventure.
So let's go climb some mountains. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you guide us every day and always by your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you've given us your word to comfort us, to challenge us, to show us the way that we should go. And we thank you that you've given us your son, Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice for our sin, that we might be reconciled to you. Lord, I pray that you would break our hearts for the people who are lost all around us. I pray, Lord, that you would burden our hearts with a burning desire to reach them with the love that you have for them and to draw them into your kingdom. And we pray that you would guide our steps and give us the strength we need and the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. This has been a production of Good Samaritan Anglican Church in Middleburg, Florida. For more sermons, sermon notes, and information about our congregation, please visit www.goodsamaritananglican.org slash sermons. If this podcast has been helpful to you, please subscribe and leave us a review with your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening. God bless you.